want to emphasize again the 21 days of prayer and fasting that we're doing as a movement. I got a call and a couple of emails the other day. We're praying for you. I think it was on Friday where they were praying for us, different churches in the Antioch network around the country. And that was so encouraging to me. And we want to be praying for them. We'll be praying for every part of our society. Is anybody aware that this is a kind of interesting days we're living in, a little bit challenging, the voices that we're hearing and, and discerning through all of that? So you can go ahead and wave at me if that's sort of any, you know. You've, you've had a couple of times where you just went, whoa, what was that? So, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment. Let your church be those who understand what is true, what doesn't change, what is pure and excellent and lovely and noble. I'm Mark Buckner. I'm the uh, interim pastor here, serving with our church this year. I've been a part of our movement for a long, long time, and uh, uh, just delighted to be walking in community with you and seeing the kingdom of God come here in Boston. This guy right here, his name is Justin Coxon. Is that right? Excellent. And uh, his, what he does most of his time is consulting with this company. It's kind of got a weird name, Oracle. And you, you consult and sell products. What is it that you do during the week? You consult. It's like people that have problems call you and say, Justin, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling good this week. Yeah, okay. And then software, just boom, it starts happening when he touches their emotions in the right way. Excellent. All right. Well, Justin is one of our elders here and is an excellent communicator. We, we have a teaching team. I believe that there are multiple. See, I told you I was going to stand up here and make you stare at people for a while. I believe that there's more than one voice that people need to hear as a community. We have leadership. But there are multiple gifts, and so we have about four or five people that, that teach on a regular basis in our community. Do you appreciate that? Do you like hearing of different giftings? So I, I think that's important. And uh, so, anyway, bless this man, Lord Jesus. We, we thank you for his investment in the Word, how you've trained him as he's submitted to you over the course of his life. And I, I ask that you would soak him with wisdom and revelation, you'd fill this room with a level of discernment that, that when we hear your word, it would, it would penetrate our hearts. There would be deep conviction that it would, it would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, brother. All right. So I am here to talk to you today, not about software, but about sin. Today we're going to talk about sin. So we've been going through this series. This is a second week in the book of 1 Corinthians. And books like 1 Corinthians in the Bible have a lot of direct application to us as a church. These were letters that were written to churches just like ours, and it's dealing with a lot of issues. And obviously, one of the issues that affects the church in Corinth and the church today is sin. And today I'm going to talk about what is sin, right? I'm going to try to answer that question for you. What is sin? Now, that may seem like a, a... pretty obvious question that we could answer, but when I think about the implications in our culture, the implications in our society, I'm not sure that that answer is as obvious as it might seem. 
So think about the times you've heard someone say, you know, when you're talking about issues of morality or just about the Bible, oh, well, Jesus never said we shouldn't insert whatever your, your issue is, right? Or the Bible doesn't have a verse about, right? So sin is a tricky thing. It's not just as simple as uh, things that the Bible explicitly forbids. And as we talk about this, you know, imagine if you were, you know, People use this phrase, the devil's advocate. Imagine if you were the devil's advocate. You're responsible for promoting sin in the world. Are you going to write, this is a sin, in big red letters on everything that's a sin and make it very obvious to people what sin is and what sin isn't? Probably not. And this is, uh, I like how Revelation 12 talks about the one who is responsible for sin in the world, the devil. It says that the devil is leading the world astray. So sin is not this obvious binary thing that we can always know with 100% certainty what is and what isn't. And it, you know, it's just written in big red letters. The devil is trying to lead us astray. That's why it's important to try to define what sin is really, because we can easily be led astray. So for those of you who were here with us over the last few weeks, we did a series in Genesis, right, talking about origins. And even in our origins, in the beginning, we see sin into the picture. So some of you know the stories we talked about, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God gives them dominion, gives them the ability to subdue the earth. And very soon in Genesis, we see sin into the picture. There's a, a, a fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and they eat it, and then sin enters the world. So from the very beginning, God has order. And when we rebel against that order, that's sin. That's one of the ways sin manifests itself. Sin is a, a rebellion against God's order. Now, from the beginning, there's this redemptive plan that's happening in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Then we have the Old Testament. A lot of the things we see laid out there, sin is painted in very black and white terms. You have the Ten Commandments. You have books like Leviticus that are very clearly saying, hey, this is what you should and should not do, right? But sin runs deeper than that, which is why in the New Testament, we have Jesus come on the scene Jesus lives this perfect life that's free of sin and any, any of the effects of it. And then he sacrifices himself for us, dies on the cross in our place for our sins, for all the things that we've violated. And then he raises with power. And he gives people a mission. And that mission is to continue the process of reconciling the entire world back to God and ridding the world of all these consequences and all these things that we experience because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. And those people that he gave that mission to, that's the church. That's the church at Corinth. That's, that's the church today. So that's us, right? We have that mission to continue the process of reconciling everything back to the way it was created to be. Now, the challenge with that is church has issues, right? The church at Corinth, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, they have a lot of issues despite their lofty call. The church today has issues. So what we're looking at when we read the book of 1 Corinthians it was written by a man named Paul. Paul is writing a letter to this church to help address some of their issues. Paul is kind of like Mark would be, right? Paul is responsible for overseeing the work that's going on in these different churches. He's a leader. He's a spiritual mentor. He's a father to a lot of the people that were in that context. Now, just to give you context about Corinth, Corinth is located in southern Greece, and Corinth at the time was a port city. So that meant it prospered financially. It was very wealthy. And when you take people who are sinful by nature and you give them a lot of money, 
probably know what happens, right? You get rampant immorality. Corinth was known, even among other cities, as particularly immoral. Um, It had a a reputation as being a very uh, loose and immoral place. If I were to make a modern-day comparison, when I, when I read about how Corinth is described, Corinth kind of reminds me of Vegas. Like, it's that place you go to when you really want to let loose, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I don't know if they said that, but it had that type of reputation, right? You know, this is the place where if you really want to experience immorality, if you really want to live it up, you're going to Corinth. Now, despite all that, right, despite the reputation of Corinth or the reputation of any city, any city, the gospel can and will redeem sinfulness and brokenness. And that's what we see. So Acts 18, Paul takes a group of people to Corinth and they start a church. They start seeing people get saved. They start seeing people want to commit their lives to Jesus. And then the letter we're reading today is Paul corresponding with people back in Corinth. So Paul's not in the city. He's away and he's writing a letter corresponding with them a few years later. So imagine if you're in Corinth you grew up in a city that has rampant immorality and it's just the norm, right? You become a believer and two years into your faith journey, someone's writing you a letter dealing with some of your issues. You can probably imagine some of the issues that they're dealing with, right? This is a very immoral place. This is a place where a lot of people grew up in a culture that was very given to sin. So there's some very uh, graphic and immoral things going on here. Now, one of the issues that they deal with is just how do I live free of sin in a culture where immorality is such the norm, and it's so prevalent. It's not just something people are doing, but it's everywhere. To give you an example, in Corinth, they had this temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess of pleasure, and it sat about 1,800 feet above sea level. So it was a very prominent temple, and there were a 1,000 shrine prostitutes that were frequenting that temple. So this, I mean, the equivalent would be a brothel, right? This giant brothel just kind of sitting in a very prominent place in the city. I think we have a picture of that. Yeah, there it is. So people don't know if that's, this is the exact place, but this is Corinth, and this is just to give you feel for kind of the prominence that it, that it sat at. So you're living in Corinth, you become a believer, and every day you're walking or seeing this giant temple, right, where there's lots of things going on that you know you probably shouldn't be doing. So when we talk about what is sin, people are probably struggling with, you know, maybe they used to work in that temple, so is it a sin for me to still talk to people that I used to work with? Or, you know, people probably went to that temple to have a good time. So is it a sin for me to still go to that temple? You know, maybe not to be with women, but just to have a drink, kind of blow off some steam after work. Like, where's the line, right? What is sin really? If it's the norm in my culture, if there's this temple with a thousand women in it, where's the line when it comes to sin? Paul is going to give them some guidance and some counsel and how they can live in a city that's uh, very immoral and that has a really uh, deeply rooted in sin culture, how they can live free of the consequences of sin and temptation. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at the entire chapter today. So if you have your Bible, just open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 1 and go through the entire thing. We're going to take this in chunks. We're not going to read the whole thing at once. We're going to break it into chunks. So 1 Corinthians, uh, start at chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 1. So I'm going to read read the first chunk of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians 10. This is Paul writing. 
For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most, with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred, to us, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to, to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Okay, we're going to stop there. So, this first part of the chapter, Paul is dealing with the issue of temptation, right? Anytime sin is prevalent, people deal with temptation, this desire to want to live in a way that we know God hasn't called us to live. And Paul starts by helping them deal with temptation by talking about some of the sins that their ancestors committed. Now, when he's referring to their ancestors, he's referring to the Israelites, the people that were led out of Egyptian slavery, that you know, very uh, common tale we know of Moses parting the Red Sea and leading people miraculously out. That's who he's referring to when he's saying our ancestors. And he's saying that the ancestors committed a particular sin. And that sin, if I were to sum it up, was they had a misconception about sin. They had a misunderstanding of what God's character was as it relates to sin. The mistake of the ancestors was that they thought thought sin was this system of checks and balances. So in verse uh, 2 through 5, we see that God provided for them miraculously. A lot of us know that tale. Moses parts the Red Sea. It opens up, right? They walk through it. They're led out of uh, Egyptian slavery. A very powerful move of God. This is really relevant to the Corinthian church because in Corinth, they were seeing a lot of spiritual gifts, a lot of powerful moves of God. What Paul is saying here, though, is that God doesn't owe you that powerful display because of your sin or because of your lack of sin, right? There isn't this check and balance system where the less I sin, the more I automatically get to experience or see God's power in my life. And by reverse, right, the more I might be doing, oh, God's going to hold back for me. He's saying, no, that's not what it was. And I like how Psalm 106 puts it. It clearly details that what the reason for God's displays of power were for their ancestors. This is Psalm 106 from the Old Testament. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea. Yet yet he saved them for his own name's sake, to make his mighty power known. So God displayed his power because he was advancing his kingdom, because he was making his name known. It wasn't because the Israelites at that time had some level of piety that merited this miracle from God or for him to deliver them. They weren't in some condition where God's like, oh man, that's so awesome. Now I'm going to deliver you. No, it's because he wanted to make his name famous. It was because he wanted to advance his kingdom and display his power. And so God's power and miraculous displays of miracles are not some approval stamp 
on our lifestyle and how we're dealing with sin. So I think this, you know, the, the fact that sin is not some system of checks and balances, right? This has direct application for us. And I think it's a warning for us, just like it was a warning for the church at Corinth. A lot of us have things that we might consider blessings or signs that God has provided for us. You have jobs, right? You have degrees that you're pursuing. Some of you in here go to the most elite academic institutions in the entire world. That's, a, that's, a, that's something you can thank God for, right? Some of us have relationships that are going really well. Some of us are faith group leaders, right? Our faith groups are doing well. They're multiplying. But we can't use that as a measuring stick for whether or not God is satisfied with how we're dealing with sin in our lives. God is displaying his power to advance his name, to advance his kingdom, and not as a rubber stamp of approval on how we're dealing with our sin. So that's a warning for us. And Paul goes on to describe that sin by nature is, is or Paul goes on to talk about uh, temptation, right? And temptation becomes important here because sin is deceitful. Remember Revelation 12, the devil is leading the world astray. So the deceitfulness of sin sometimes manifests itself when we try to look at the condition of our life and use that as a litmus test for whether or not we're dealing with sin. And this is where Paul talks about temptation. He's saying, look, if you think you're standing on solid ground, verse 12, right? You think that you look at your life and things are okay and nothing's, no catastrophic consequences have happened yet. That's when you have to be careful. That's when you could be given into temptation. And he says that there's a way that we can deal with temptation, right? And dealing with temptation, as he goes on to describe, is not that we have some superpower as believers to kind of white-knuckle it and just endure and hold on and, you know, deal with immorality, deal with grumbling, deal with the things he's talking about, right? Testing Christ. He's not saying that we just sit there and white-knuckle it. The way that we escape temptation is to take the way out, right? To uh, allow God's faithfulness to provide us a way out. So we can't measure sin in our life by saying, oh, well, I haven't experienced the consequences of it yet, so I must be doing okay. And the question we have to ask ourselves is not, is God still providing for me? Am I still getting what I want from God? The question we have to ask when it comes to sin and temptation is what am I doing to flee? How am I fighting the effects actively of sin, of temptation in my life? And that's a lot of different things, right? That's prayer, that's fasting, that's repentance, that's confession, that's taking the active necessary steps to flee sin, to flee temptation in our lives. That's how we as believers endure, the way Paul's describing here. I like how uh, Psalm 139 puts it, this prayer, right, that we should ask God to search and know our hearts, to test us, to know our thoughts, to see if there's anything offensive in us and to lead us in the way of everlasting. So dealing with sin and temptation is never about standing where we are and just trying to endure it. It's being led out by God to eternal life, to a way of escape, to a way of life that he's provided for us to live. Paul goes on, we're going to pick up in verse 14, that the way we defeat sin, the way we defeat the effects of temptation in our lives is to flee. It's honoring God when we flee sin, when we flee temptation. I'm going to pick up at verse 14. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the body of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the loaf. 
Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have both part in the Lord's table and part of the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, we're going to stop here. So he's going on to kind of pull this out more, right? That sin's effects in the world are everywhere. And seemingly, uh, what I'll, I'll use the word neutral things, have consequences, have directions that they're pulling us. So there is no neutrality here. Paul goes on to make this comparison of deeper meaning. He's talking about communion, right? He's saying, when we as believers, we take communion, that's pointing our allegiance towards something. That's allowing us to identify with Christ, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And he's also saying there's people who take that same cup and they do it to bear their allegiance to idols, to something that's not God. This is where sin gets a little more tricky, right? It's not just this long list of things that the Bible says we can't do, but it's also evaluating not just our actions, but the implications of our actions, the motivations behind our actions. What we're doing, everything we're doing, is bearing our allegiance towards something. It's pulling us towards God, and it's pulling us closer towards the way God created us to live and the way he ordered us to live, or it's pulling us away from God. There's no neutrality here. I had a I had a coach in, uh, in college when I was playing football. He said, every single day, when you step on the practice field, everything you're doing is making you better or it's making you worse. Right? He's saying that you're either putting forth the type of effort that's going to make you a better player or you're coasting and you're getting worse. There's no neutrality. This is a, a similar concept to what Paul is describing here. That our allegiances, even in the implications, the motivations behind our actions, that's bearing our allegiance towards something. There is no having a seat at the Lord's table and having a seat at the table of an idol or the table of demons. So this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Sin is not just this exhaustive list of things that the Bible says we can't do. It's more than that. We have to evaluate our heart. We have to evaluate our motivations. We have to evaluate the implications behind our actions. So this is where it gets tricky because we also not only have to live by, uh, when I say that sin is not an exhaustive list of things the Bible says we can't do, I'm not minimizing the fact that the Bible does have things that it says we can't do that we shouldn't do, right? So I'm not eliminating that. What I am saying is we also have to live by principles. We have to live by motivations that the Bible gives us. And we have to evaluate what our actions, what's that bearing my allegiance to? So when we, have to, when we talk about principles, Right? This is where sin becomes tricky because we have verses like 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Or, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. It talks about greed, right? It talks about how the love of money can lead us into all types of sins, how it's the root of all evil. That's a principle. And so then, if we have this principle, uh, naturally, you kind of get follow-up questions, right? So, Bible says principally that greed is, is wrong and I shouldn't be a greedy person because that can lead me into all types of evil. So does that mean I can have a 401k? Does that mean I can buy this type of car? Does that mean I can spend X amount of money on my clothes, right? Where's the line when it comes to sin? This is where principles are tricky because there isn't a just exhaustive list of, yeah, you can buy these types of cars, but you can, 
you could buy a Hyundai. Hyundai would be on it because we have a Hyundai, so I feel like our, our, car, our car would qualify. It's nothing special if you've ever ridden in it, right? But we have principles. So sin is tricky because we not only just have things that the Bible prescribes that we can't do, but we have principles that we have to live by and we have to evaluate. Greed is one of them. 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul talks about sexual immorality, he talks specifically and gives them a command about not making themselves one or not sleeping with the temple prostitutes, right? So he gives them a prescriptive command. But then he gives this principle about avoiding sexual immorality. So if that's the principle, then the follow-on questions you normally kind of start to think are, okay, so sexual immorality is the principle. The Bible says I should flee from it. So if I'm dating someone, does that mean we can hold hands? Does that mean we can hug? Does that mean we can kiss? How long can we kiss? Is it like three seconds the limit, and then I'm no longer fleeing sexual immorality, right? Like, where's the line? Principles are tricky, right? And we kind of ask these questions to try to get at, what do I have to do? What, where, where's the rule that I have to follow? Now, questions like that, I think, can kind of be a sign of our maturity. So some of you guys, actually a lot of you guys, have kids. You have young kids. And if your kids are like me when I was growing up, especially if you have siblings, there would be a time you're probably riding in the car and one kid starts to hit the other, right? Starts to put their hands on them. They start messing with each other. And then you tell your sibling or you tell your kid, don't hit your brother, right? Don't hit your sister. This is, this is going to be my brother. He's tall, all right? So, you know, your parents tell you, stop, stop hitting your brother, okay? And then you, you keep your hands to yourself for about five seconds. And then if you're like me, when I was a kid, what do you start doing? You know, everything but hitting your brother. You're putting your hand in their face. You're, you're blowing on them. You're doing everything but what was prescribed, right? So they gave you a rule, and you're doing everything but follow that rule. So you're obeying the prescriptive command they gave you, but are you obeying the principle? Why would a parent tell their child not to hit their sibling? Because they want them to honor them, right? They want them to love them. So by doing this, yes, I'm following the rule, but am I obeying the principle? No, right? And as a parent, here's, here's how we know we're obeying the principle or not. As a parent, you're not honored by that. They're not like, oh, yeah, thank you for not hitting your brother. You're just <laughs> so, so wise, so smart. No, you're... And as a parent, do you want to have to make a rule for everything, right? No hitting, no blowing, no waving your hand, you know. You would hope that they get the picture. When I say don't hit them, there's a reason I said don't hit them. It's because I want you to honor them. So that's what the Bible is talking about. When we have principles like sexual morality, we have to evaluate whether our actions are honoring that principle, whether they're honoring God who tells us that if we're tempted, if we're close to the line, we should flee. So Paul is going to tell us in the following verses how to not just try to come up with a list of rules for everything, how to not, you know, just do this and get as close as we can. He's going to tell us some principles we can live by to figure out whether when we're dealing with things that the Bible does not clearly and consistently forbid, how do we evaluate those in our lives? We're going to pick up verse 23. It says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, 
eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Am I referring to the other person? I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged for another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So Paul starts by affirming here that we have this thing called liberty or freedom, right? Meaning that everything we do in life doesn't have a yes or no scripture tied to it. So there are things that we can have liberty to do, eating, drinking, right? Enjoying what the Lord created because the earth is the Lord and everything is is in it. But here's the thing. Sin is anything that pulls us away from God. So as we think about enjoying our liberty, as we think about enjoying the things that the Bible does not clearly and consistently forbid, we have to ask a twofold question. And this is what Paul gets at in the verses here. The first question is dealing with God's glory. Does this affirm and show that God is worth something to me? The, the word glory means weightiness or kind of this fullness, this significance. So the first question we ask ourselves when we're dealing with issues of liberty, things that the Bible doesn't clearly and consistently forbid, am I glorifying God with this activity? Is it showing that he's weighty to me? Specifically, remember what we learned in the earlier verses, when God says that we're faced with temptation, we should flee. So does it show that I'm taking that seriously when we're dealing with issues of liberty, things that the Bible doesn't clearly and consistently forbid? Now, when we talk about things that promote God's glory, I'm not saying that, you know, the rest of your life after you leave here needs to be a Bible study or listening to worship music or being in here on Sunday. I love how Paul says the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. So there are lots of things we can do to promote God's glory. You can draw, you can paint, you can run, laugh, you know. I'm going to play football after church with some guys today. That's going to promote God's glory, uh, provided I don't pull anything, right? But there's this wide swath of things we can, in, we can do to enjoy God. So I'm talking about things that promote God's glory. I'm just trying to avoid you from kind of pigeonholing yourself to thinking, oh man, that means I just have to go to church and be in faith group and that's it. No, you can do a ton of stuff to promote God's glory because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Jesus is reconciling that whole earth, everything in creation, back to himself. So we can enjoy tons of stuff while promoting God's glory. But the first principle we have to ask is, whether it's eating or drinking or whatever it is, am I doing it in a way that shows that God is valuable to me and that shows that I value his word, that I value when he says I'm tempted that I should flee? Second part of it, or the second uh, kind of nuance in this, and this is probably a little bit challenging for those of us who grew up in America, because uh, Mark talked about cultural strongholds last week. I think an American stronghold, particularly a, a stronghold in Boston, is this idea of individualism. I'm an autonomous being. Everything I do is just about me, and, and you know, I don't have to think about anybody else. Paul's saying, the other way we think about issues of liberty is, is it helping my brother or my sister? Or is it causing them to stumble, right? He's talking about, in this case, meat that was sacrificed at temples. That was part of their culture at that time. You would sacrifice your meat uh, to a temple, to an idol, and then you would eat it in praise of that idol. 
Now, what Paul is saying here is that we don't have to play a guessing game. So it's not like you, you know, have to inspect the meat and like, you know, take a survey of everybody that you're eating with. Like, hey, did you sacrifice this to an idol? He's saying, hey, if someone makes it clear to you, makes it obvious to you that this has been sacrificed to an idol, then you should abstain. Not because it's going to taint you or, or, or mess you up or anything, but because we don't want to show that person's conscience that that idol is praiseworthy. Right? So the idea of conscience here for us might not be meat sacrificed to idols, but I remember I had a really good friend who, uh, I still have a really good friend actually, he's very close. He had a really powerful testimony in his life about drugs and alcohol. He went through a, a, a very, a kind of a 12-step program and when we were with him, and still when I'm with him today, he'll let me know, like, hey, this is what I'm comfortable with. These are environments where I can thrive. Because for him, alcohol and drugs were more than just, you know, a fermented drink and a tobacco leaf. It was a stronghold in his life. It was an idol for him. And he would make it very clear to us when we were around what he was, what he was comfortable with. And as a believer, I have to accommodate that. Sin is anything that pulls us away from God, and also by proxy, sin can pull us away from our brother or our sister. 1 John 4.20, right? We can't say we love God and then despise the, 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 uh, the accommodations that our brother or sister would want us to make. So I had to accommodate that, and I accommodate that with joy. I want to I be close with people that went through 12-step programs. I want to honor that. I don't want to cause them to stumble. So Paul is saying that's how we have to use our liberty, not just in a way that I think it promotes God's glory, but when I'm around people who have different experiences than me, who have different strongholds in their life and a different story, I want to honor that as well. Here's the last point on liberty, or on, on, on these areas where uh, the Bible hasn't given us a clear and consistent definition that it is or is not wrong. The last part of it is context. So in addition to, does it help me promote God's glory? Does it help my brother or sister walk with God faithfully? Is what's the context? Paul dealt with context differently in the New Testament. There were different prescriptions. There, were different, um, there was different wisdom he gave to different people based on their context. So we see in Galatians, in the beginning of Galatians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with this issue of circumcision. It's this uh, you know, cultural procedure, right? This, this kind of uh, Jewish tradition that they would go through. And in Galatians 5, he's telling the church there, if you guys get circumcised, it's going to show that Christ is of no value to you. The reason he's saying that is because in that church, in that context, you had these people called Judaizers who were saying that in addition to the grace of God, you also need to hold to certain Jewish traditions. So he's saying that if you guys go through with this, it's of no value to you. Now let's look at another context. Acts chapter 16 Paul takes Timothy along with him to do outreach to Jews and he circumcises him. Right? So it seems like in one context he's saying, this is, if you do this, Christ is of no value to you. In another context he's saying, hey, I want to do outreach to Jews and I don't want our culture to be a stumbling block. I'm going to circumcise this person I'm taking with me. So principles and things that the Bible doesn't clearly and consistently forbid require context. Now, an example today, I have a friend who, um, I remember his birthday party, and he's, he's a, he's a beer, he was a beer connoisseur, liked craft beer. His birthday party was at a brewery. He was, and in a very God-glorifying and honoring way, he, you know, drank in, in moderation and, and never was given to drunkenness. But a few years ago, he went to plant a church, and the denomination he was with said, our leaders in our church movements, we want to abstain from alcohol completely. So he gave up alcohol. 
So for him today, drinking a beer would show that Christ is of no value to him. A few years ago, he could probably enjoy it in a God-glorifying, God-honoring way, right? Enjoy the drink, have, a, have a, a good fellowship with me or with somebody else. So when we have liberty, we have to think about context. That's what Paul's thinking about when he's dealing with the Galatian church and when he's dealing with Timothy and Acts. What's the context, right? He's not trying to set up a rule for everything and for everybody. We don't need a rule for everything. I like how Paul goes on to even say this explicitly. In Galatians 5, chapter 6, Paul says, okay, it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. I'm not trying to make a rule here, but what matters is faith expressing itself through love. And then I like at the end of uh, Romans, Paul kind of gets at a similar thing, that everything, is not, everything that's not coming from that place of faith, that's sin. So the question when we're dealing with liberty is, that, can I do that in faith? Can I do that in faith? Faith that will promote God's glory, that it will show that God is weighty, that God's commands are, are really important to me, that I want to enjoy his order, but also faith that's going to make God attractive to other people. That's what we have to ask when we think about context. Can I do it in faith? So we can't set up a rule for everything, and Paul's not trying to do that with circumcision. We have to think about our context. We have to think about the commitments we've made. Some of you have different convictions when it comes to alcohol. You should honor those. Some of you may have made commitments to a denomination or to your section, to your zone leader. You should honor those because that's your context. So the gray areas, the things that the Bible doesn't clearly and consistently forbid, we need to think about the context. Paul is very pastoral, right? He knows people's context. So you may have come into this thinking, oh, what is sin? He's going to kind of talk about things that the Bible says we shouldn't do and talk about how it's bad and how we're going to go to hell because of it. Sin's a lot more complicated than that. Jesus died for more than just underage drinking, right? These kind of clear cultural faux pas that we know are, are, are sin. There's things that we're doing that are out of bad motivations, there's things that we're doing that we th- might think are fine that aren't honoring to others. There's things that we haven't considered the context might be con- causing others to stumble. So sin and its effects in the world run deep. But Jesus' blood is powerful. It's redemptive. And it's freeing us from more than just that time you went to Chipotle and you got the cup for water and then you filled it with lemonade. I know <laughs> no one's done that except me. So it's for my own example. So as we close here, I'm going to ask our faith group leaders to come forward, or people that are in any, any area of spiritual leadership in our church. Come forward. We're going to uh, enter into a time of response right now. So what I like about Paul and what I like about the context of Corinthians, we have to consider what's going on here. Paul is not just writing a letter and the church at Corinth is, you know, reading it individually they're downloading Paul's podcast and they're listening to it on their own, thinking about, oh, how does this apply to me? This is a communal effort. This is where community comes in. This is why community is important, right? It's nearly impossible for us to fight sin, for us to fight temptation alone. So Paul has a relationship with the believers at Corinth where he can speak into their lives. And that's what our faith group leaders are here for. That's what these people, these men and these women, They're wanting to be that. They're wanting to be that person who can know you, who can know your context, who can speak into your life and give you wisdom for how to fight sin, for how to fight temptation. 
So the question I want us to ask as we enter into a time of response here, I want to to push up against this idea of individualism in our culture, in our society, this idea that even if we have the Bible, even if we have God's commands, that I can just sit alone, I can figure it out myself and, and go on with my day. We need each other. We need people like Paul who know us, who can speak into our lives. We need other believers who can walk alongside us. Because when Jesus defeated sin, he also offered us eternal life. And eternal life is more than just abstaining from alcohol. It's enjoying the fullness of what the Lord created. We need Jesus to do that, and we need other people to help us walk that journey. So why I, the reason I have faith leaders up here is not because I'm saying that, you know, going to uh, a faith group is going to, for an hour and a half a week, is going to change everything in your life. What I'm saying is, we need a network of relationships. That's what faith groups are. It's not just a, it's not just an hour and a half meeting. It's inviting you into a network of relationships where people can walk free of the consequences of sin together. Sin is anything in our life that pulls us away from God and also pulls us away from each other. So as we enter into this time of response here, the question I want us to answer is, who do I need to connect with? Maybe you need to connect with Jesus. Maybe you haven't thought about your sin, how deep it is, how the consequences are, or how how sin is more than just, not just violating these things that the Bible clearly says we shouldn't do. It's deep, it's contextual, right? It's about our implications, about our heart motivations. But also, maybe you need to connect with somebody else. Maybe it's a faith group leader. Maybe it's someone else in in the room here today to just kind of lay some things out for them. Here's what I'm dealing with right now. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm struggling with. Can you help me untangle this thing called sin in my life? And that's a journey we want to walk with you together. So as we enter into a time of response, we're going to sing a few songs here. Let's respond to the Lord. Let's connect with the Lord. Let's connect with